Hello and welcome to Who Writes This Stuff, I guess. It's been a while. Uh, I haven't done a podcast in a good three months, I guess, and uh, it feels good. I'm not going to lie. It feels good to be back into it. This is uh, my personal favorite episode that uh, that we do every year, and I honestly, when I kind of put pause on the podcast, I in my mind, I was like, except for the the movie countdown podcast that I do with Jeff Houston every year. That's not going to go away. Um, although I didn't tell Jeff right away, so I think that there was a little bit of some confusion there. But we got it worked out. I'm currently in Tulsa, Oklahoma, at the home of uh, of my guest, and I guess my co-host for this episode, uh, film critic, Project Greenlight, award-winning filmmaker. That's right. That's my favorite sentence to say now. And just all-around lovely human being, Mr. Jeff Houston. Thanks for having me over once again. It is great to be back on this podcast. And like you said, when you announced your retirement from this podcast, (laughs) I... I understood because I, I get what it takes to produce a podcast and it's a lot of work. But then I was also like, oh, that's kind of a bummer. We're not going to do the movie podcast anymore. And then a little bit later, you're like, no, we're still doing no, it if you're game. It. And I'm like, you bet. Yeah. So here we are. <laughs> yeah, it definitely it's 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 sort of a, a curious choice of the one thing to hold over from a podcast. It was mostly me interviewing musicians. Right. But if you if you listen to the podcast even a little bit, you know that I can't stop referencing and talking about movies, which is my number one hobby probably because music got taken over by being an annoying career that I have to pursue now. (laughs) But uh, it's one of my favorite things and you're one of my favorite people to talk movies with uh, because not only are you a genuine movie and film enthusiast, uh, I was going to say nerd, but I'll say enthusiast. I'll I'll go with nerd (laughs) too. That's fine. uh, You you also have turned it into a career, which is uh, one of my favorite things is anytime anybody can take something that they're excited about and and pursue it as, as... just genuine pleasure and a hobby and turn it into something full time. And so I feel like that gives you a little bit, you know, I feel like we should listen to you now <laughs> before if you were just a regular old schmo, I don't think so, but right. uh, no, but I, I, I'm very excited to dive in. We're going to, we're going to jump in. If you're unfamiliar with, uh, we're going to go through our top 10 favorite movies of the year. Maybe not the best, but in, in our minds, like the movies that really stuck out to us and resonated with us this year or last year, I guess, I guess yeah, I should say, 2015. 2015. Yeah. And, uh, we're going to break it up a little bit with uh, some music interludes. Jeff, will you tell everybody what we just heard uh, coming into the intro of the podcast? Yeah, so, so we open the podcast with a selection from the score for the film Steve Jobs, which, uh, according to the box office, most of you out there did not see. <laughs> so sad. But it's a great, very unique score. I was actually disappointed um, that it wasn't nominated in the score category by the Academy. Um, it's a score by Daniel Pemberton, who I'm not familiar with. I don't know if he's done scores before, if he's just a musician that got hired by director Danny Boyle to do the score. But anyway, it just really captured sort of the style of that 80s and 90s era, but in a way that still uh, didn't feel dated. And uh, it's just, it's a unique score, as you could tell in that track. And uh, it was the whole thing is very well composed. And so it was one I wanted to highlight. Yeah, it's really cool. It's it definitely... It's I I would imagine it would be tricky to write a score that's that like you said highlights different decades without being mm-hmm. so campy and so obvious and right. yeah he did a really great job yeah so uh, I think we should just jump right into it I think we're we're gonna do we're gonna go through back and forth our top ten like I said and then also um, maybe give some uh, honorable mentions kind of at the end like we did last yeah. year is that sort of we yeah. didn't discuss this ahead of time. We discussed some stuff, but uh, well, and and depending on how long this goes, because I know it ends up 
it seems like it always goes longer than we think it's going to go. Always. Um, we like at, to talk. And I actually haven't prepared any thoughts, but we could off the cuff at the end, maybe just really quickly discuss the Academy Awards sure. and kind of where uh, the day that we're recording, where the race is at, just because it's a little bit more interesting than usual. Definitely. Um, but maybe we'll just get into that a little bit near the end as well. But as usual, this has not been a good year for movies. I feel like I hear that every year. Like, this has been a really disappointing year for movies. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Right, right. Well, and that's, and I may have said this on previous podcasts we've recorded, but I'm with you. I just never understand that sentiment. I mean, some years are better than others, sure. but I'm always having a struggle like to parse down my top 20, mm-hmm. you know, let alone my top 10. And and what that just tells me is people who say that one at the end of the day, they're going to the theater looking for something very different than what I'm looking for. Uh, it's a little bit, I don't mean this as a negative, but it's a little bit more of a limited scope of just, they just want to be entertained. They yeah. want to just kind of forget. And it's more of a singular purpose. Whereas people who really are cinephiles, there's there's much more expanse to what they're looking for and what they're hoping to glean from the movie going experience. And so if you're in that camp, uh, you'll always, I mean, there's a lot of bad stuff to sift through, yeah. but you'll always find great stuff in any given year. And I think both of our lists will exemplify that. Absolutely. I, have a, I had a top 15 that, I, that just, I wrestled with literally up until this morning. I was like, I don't know where things are going to land. And then I, I had to just commit to this moment right now. And of, of course, this could change. This list is not definitive. Right. This is just sort of where we are right now because there have definitely been past years where I look at the list and I'm like, huh, I never really revisited that well what's interesting is in in the context of it not being definitive so i have a movie blog and i have already done my top 10 list on that blog i won't state the url quite yet so that you don't if you're not familiar with the blog don't stop the podcast and just go see my top 10 just listen to us and we'll have a good conversation but all that to say so i've already done my top 10 list you know right at the turn of the year Mm -hmm. and one of the films on my list, it it still is exactly like that list in terms of where I have the films ranked, but I will discuss how one film that I've re-seen since I made that list, if I was to remake my list now, would probably be higher than it is right now. Interesting. So it's just one of those things where when you see something, uh, things change and, you, so and you see new things. And so, but like you're saying right now, this is as definitive as it can get. And, uh, and, all these, I mean, even like my 11 through 20, yeah. it's like some of those, like, how was that not in my top 10? They're just, they're that good. There are movies that I literally left off two years ago when we first did it that are now probably in my top three. Inside Lewin Davis is the one that I'm thinking of right mm. now, where I, I didn't even get a chance to see it. And you were like, really? And then it's like, it's, that's it's, Nick it's, Flora material. 100%. And yeah. in that movie specifically, but there's a lot that are on this list too that I'll talk about. And I encourage people often because I know that a lot of people don't have the time to, but if a movie sort of, if you don't hate a movie when you watch it, um, go ahead and watch it again. Because there are movies that I, especially on this list, that I was like, that was interesting, but I don't really know how I feel. And then the second time around, I really, now that I knew, my brain knew where the story was going, I was mm-hmm. able to focus more on sort right. of the artistic take of it. And so I tell people all the time, I'm like, when I mention a movie that I love or something that I enjoy, and they're like, really? I did not enjoy it. And, I'm like, and they explain why. I'm like, well, watch it again. Because so many times... 
you know, when you first watch something, your brain is going a million different places trying to figure out the story. And, you know, you're trying to like figure out whether you like this actress in this role or not. Like I do anyway. Or I'm mm-hmm. like, is this a miscast? I'm not sure. When you don't know where it's headed, your focus might not be in the right place right. at all times. So that's mm-hmm. what that's I call it the Grand Budapest Hotel effect, because that movie Every time I see it, it, just a new layer unfolds mm-hmm. because it is just jam packed with like artistic goodness, and uh, of course, I love it so much. But well, and and just to take a brief tangent, since you did bring up Inside Lewin Davis, I think we do need to emphasize if you've not seen that Coen Brothers film, it does have Poe Dameron and Kylo Ren totally. singing with Justin Timberlake. What's not to <laughs> a love? Song about going to space. No, <laughs> I, know. I know. I know. That that definitely cracked me up. Like I, you know, the whole time. Uh, well, let's get into it. Do you want to start us off with your number ten? I do. Uh, I will start off. My number ten is the reboot of the Rocky saga called Creed. You're not built for this. These boys coming here. They got to fight for life. People die in the ring. Your daddy died in the ring. I don't know him. I ain't got nothing to do with me. I've been fighting my whole life. It's not a choice for me. Every punch I ever thrown has been on my own. Nobody showed me how to do this. I'm ready. And, and when this movie was first announced, I know a lot of people were very skeptical, which is understandable. But for me, since I always gravitate towards filmmakers, uh, when that announcement was made, it was made as this is the next film from the writer-director of Fruitvale Station, which was a phenomenal film, I think, from 2013, based on a, a true story, very tragic story. Uh, and that film was made by writer-director Ryan Coogler, an up-and-coming African-American filmmaker, starred Michael B. Jordan, who's a great up-and-coming actor. And so it was Coogler reuniting with Michael B. Jordan, uh, with Jordan playing the illegitimate son of Apollo Creed. And so when it was just, when it was that creative talent involved, man, I was excited just from the outset. And inevitably, it didn't let me down. And uh, it just, it, it really, What's amazing is you've got this, not only is it essentially the best Rocky film since the first Rocky film, and really, uh, you know, is is very similar in nature and tone and style. Although I also really appreciated the last, the Rocky Six, Rocky Balboa was very similar in tone as well. But it's, uh, it really ends up being so much of the screen time of Creed are just these scenes between uh, the young Creed and the older Rocky Balboa and just the relationship between the two of them at these different phases of their life and uh, the things that they're missing in their lives and how uh, this how that they complement each other but yet there's a, still a struggle within their growth and anyway so it isn't this overhyped you know Rocky Four style of movie it really is this character study it is this sort of independent movie made within a Hollywood formula. And that was the other great thing I loved about this is it does follow a very traditional formula in terms of its narrative. But what Kugler as a filmmaker shows us is that formulas aren't necessarily a bad thing. You just have to make them authentic and you can, it's possible. Uh, A lot of times we feel the formula of movies because 
for whatever reason, the filmmakers just aren't completely invested into the story they're telling. They've, they're thinking it more you know, from a structure standpoint than really authentic standpoint. And so Cooler just makes a formula very authentic, as does his cast. Uh, Stallone will probably win the supporting actor Oscar, deservedly so. so. One of his best performances. And, and again, great to see you know, his career come full circle and this opportunity for really for him to show the the depth and the breadth of his ability and his talent. So for me, it really, I mean, it was chills, <laughs> tears, cheers, you know, from start to finish and just a, a highly emotional experience uh, and also one that was, um, as a cinephile, I was just very impressed with. So Creed is my number 10. Yeah, absolutely. It's so funny you mentioned it. It's not on my list, but it's my number eleven mm. easily. And I wasn't expecting to because um, I've only seen maybe the first Rocky. Oh wow! And uh, but I was completely. But that doesn't matter. I would say that even right. if you haven't seen, there is right. such there's enough of a cultural zeitgeist um, knowledge based knowledge of Rocky that going in, you kind of know who these characters are. And even you know when you see him visiting. Uh, the grave of his wife, Yo Adrian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think her name is Yo. I think it's just Adrian. <laughs> but um, there, there's, there's like in a you kind of feel a little bit of a like heart gut punch, you yeah. know, like of like oh, like and and that just goes back to Stallone as an actor. Yes. really sells that kind of thing. Again, whether you're familiar with the backstory or not, yes. you feel it. And I almost did the whole the Nick Flora thing where I was like, well, I'm gonna watch every single movie and then watch it. And I was like, I really didn't have the time to do that. But it, and I'm glad I didn't. But uh, but I mean, it just proves. And I love these movies that you get bummed out that Fruitvale Station and Michael B. Jordan didn't get sort of the the do I feel like they were deserved back right. then. But then you're sort of like, oh, but this is sort of if that didn't happen, I feel like this this sort of lended its its way to making Creed such a people being like, oh, well, that didn't get any. So now Creed, literally, the movie is the underdog because everybody, whether you come in with your own notion of what. Like, oh, they can't touch Rocky or, mm-hmm. you know, th- that's my beloved franchise or like, who's this new kid? Whatever it is, the movie itself is also the underdog as much as he is in the movie. Right. And and, and just even to, uh, to really speak to how authentically told this story is, this what MGM owns the property of Rocky. And it wasn't them trying to come up with how do we reboot this? It wasn't even on their radar to try and reboot it. But Coogler had an idea. And he approached MGM and Sylvester Stallone said, gave him the pitch. Yeah. Said, here's what I would love to do with this story. What do you guys think? And they were sold on it. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that it, it it came from an authentic place from a specific artist and not just some studio thinking, how can we milk some more money out of this name property? Yeah. So And, and so, yes, yeah, so you feel the realism and uh, the heart within that. There are so many things that I want to say to you as Jeff, my friend, and not Jeff, uh, the person I'm talking to on a podcast because it'll be a spoiler. But like there are things that I want to tell you that I'm like this moment though, you yeah. know. But there there are specific moments, especially you using the term even Creed's illegitimate son. Right, it leads into him like what what makes him want to fight and do mm-hmm. you know the, like the the plot point that just sets him forward as a character that is so powerful. I have chills right now even thinking about it. Yeah, but yeah, and I'm not a big sports movie fan in general, but I feel like this is. Sports, the the boxing part of it is just like the setting. It's much more about these characters. So even if you're sort of like, eh, not for me, like give it a shot because I feel like great uh, uh, romantic relationship yes. with Creed uh, as, as well. Sort of three dimensional. Very much so. Um, very tender, uh, but also some uh, believable tension within that. Mm-hmm. And then to the sport element, 
the boxing scenes are just extremely well crafted and staged and choreographed with uh, one that shows up about halfway through the film uh, is literally one take. And it's not one of these situations where they shot it four or five times and just, you know, fudged the edit. It literally is legitimately one take the whole fight. And when you realize that, it just, again, just from a craftsmanship standpoint, you're kind of blown away yeah. by uh, uh, by what they achieved yeah. uh, with this movie. Yeah, excellent choice, for sure. Good job, Jeff. Um, <laughs> my number 10 um, is uh, Ex Machina. Caleb, I'm just going to throw this out there so it's said, okay? You're freaked out. You're freaked out to be meeting me, having this conversation in this room at this moment, right? But can we just get past that? The whole employer-employee thing? It's good to meet you, Nathan. It's good to meet you too, Kay. This building isn't a house. It's a research facility. And I want to talk to you about what I'm researching. You want to see something cool? Uh, a movie that I literally didn't know going in and uh, anything about. Um, which is my favorite way of knowing. I, it's so easy these days to know everything about a movie before you even watch it. And so now it's, it's, it's like a little bit, a little bit harder to sort of back up and be like, you know what? I know enough to intrigue me and I'm not going to uh, read anything about it. But for me, I'll say before I get into it, that movies, like I chose the, the movies I chose because I, I like movies that, you know, engage me throughout. Uh, these are movies that I like that I can't stop thinking about even days or weeks after they just really have a hold on me, whether it's in a, disturbing way or pleasurable way I really like anything that makes me feel and this is nothing new most people feel this way um, and then also going back to the rewatch like a second time uh, anything that I sort of can't wait to dig in a few days later a second time even if it's just to figure out what I, things I missed the first time that was going on so Ex Machina is a perfect example of this um, which is essentially about a young programmer uh, played by uh, my boy Donald Gleason big fan he had a big year he Ut did utility player of the year in my, in my mind time. he really did some great I, I really think we're gonna see some great things for him but uh well he, he's a young programmer that's selected to participate in sort of a groundbreaking experiment of the character played by Oscar Isaac uh who's sort of this uh egomaniacal um conflicted within himself but egomaniacal uh recluse of a genius um and the the experiment is more in the synthetic intelligence by evaluating the human qualities of a breathtaking humanoid ai played by alicia vikander i think i'm saying that name vikander vikander mm -hmm. who uh blew me away in this role and I, um i'd never seen before also so i was especially to me i, I love it when i witness an actor for the first time because to me they're just that character i, I, don't, right. I don't have any other sort of you know, uh, preconceived notion of like, oh, look, it's, you know, Poe Dameron and Lewin Davis. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, I don't want to say mu too much about this movie because I knew, like I said, virt virtually nothing going in and letting it play out little by little was the most satisfying part to me. Sort of figuring out as the characters are, or the, our main character, uh, Donald Gleason is figuring it out. And uh, I will say that tonally it is equal parts Alfred Hitchcock uh, and Blade Runner. Uh, but also... It all—it almost felt like a, um, like a, a, like a modernized version of the of the Twilight Zone. Mm -hmm. like there was something very—it's it's very uh, measured in tone and sort of plays out, sort of like syrup making its way across the floor. But you're just like, where's this going? But it's heading there slowly. Um, but uh, yeah, and it, it what struck me immediately was the stunningly chic set designs, mm -hmm. uh, and 
of course, you know, when you start watching a movie that you're immediately, I do anyway, I'm sort of like, you know, is this a world that could really exist? You, you, you test the believable factor a lot. And for this, it is set in sort of the not so distant future. Right. As the filmmaker said, it's almost set in uh, tomorrow. Like mm. it could happen tomorrow kind of thing. And uh, the, the story could almost be a play between these three right. main characters. And I was so drawn in visually uh, that I would love to honestly see more films that take place in this postmodern utopia obsessed world. Uh, it'd be so interesting to see like, well, what else is going on since most of it does take place in this compound? Um, writer, director, Alex Gar Garland, uh, who created and wrote the script, uh, did an amazing job. Donald Gleason, who I said is so excellently casted um, as well as Oscar Isaac and who we rarely get to see in a role, this manic and sort of power hungry, very intense. Very intense. And, but, uh, uh, very alive too. It's yes. just uh, particularly if you like to follow actors' careers and see how much range they have. When you compare Oscar Isaac in Ex Machina with Inside Lewin Davis, I mean polar opposite polar sides opposites. of the spectrum. Yet if you only saw one of those two films, you would think that's maybe the only thing he can do. Mm -hmm. But then you see, oh my goodness, the, uh, the, yeah. how much Lewin Davis doesn't believe in what he's doing. <laughs> and, it's, and it's wrestling within that it's like the it is the polar opposite with this yeah. character because he is so just power hungry and so just like high on his own ego and, and that's really it he is high on on his own intellect his own yeah. ego what he can accomplish and it it fuels him to this uh, maniacal level yeah. almost even yeah. to the point where like I found an interesting little character uh, choices like he gets he's an alcoholic um, for reasons that you'll have to watch the movie to figure out but he but he also like instead of nursing a hangover, he, he fights through it with like a punching bag, you know, like he's, he, which to me, instead of just being this sol, sort of sullen hungover character, like he's actively fighting. He's just like, I, I am more than my body. I am more, he's has this sort of like ego maniacal uh, mm -hmm. viewpoint. The MVP in my mind for this movie was, like I said, uh, Alicia Vikander. Did I say it right again? Uh, Alicia, Alicia Vikander. Vikander. Okay. This is the David Oyelowo of 2015. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but her performance is simple and understated, but so incredibly childlike and human as the AI character that I was immediately, honestly, in love with her in the movie as watching this movie, as I think was the purpose of that character. Right. Um, and Ex Machina is almost like an elaborate sort of mysterious magic trick of sorts. Uh, one played on the characters in the film and on the audience in a way. And it's one that left me uneasy and totally jarred, uh, which normally I'm not a fan of feeling... <laughs> <laughs> uneasy and jarred, but it immediately, uh, it stuck in my mind. It, I couldn't shake it and I had to revisit it, uh, as soon as possible. Uh, so that's why number 10 is, is ex machina. Yeah. It's, it's, it's near the top of my honorable mention at number 12. And again, easily could have been in my top 10 and really along with everything you're saying, what just really impacted me was this core theme of within this you know, creation of artificial intelligence and how human-like can we create a robot to be eventually, it's ultimately dealing with these themes of playing God. Right. And uh, if we can be a creator of an intelligent being ourselves, uh, what what does our relationship with that creation look like? And And as that artificial intelligence evolves and grows, what becomes their relationship back to us. And so, you know, if you explored that 
20, 30 years ago, that would just be a metaphor for thinking about our relationship with God. But now it's actually, okay, we're down, we're going down this road. It's actually going to be real at some point. Yes. And so this becomes a lot more relevant to us to begin to think about is, okay, we are basically playing God at this point. Uh, of course, not only in AI, but in genetics, and it's just, it's freaky what's going on. Uh, but but that's why the film resonates uh, in, in a much broader, deeper level is because you have this idea of, okay, what does it look like when we're playing God, uh, both for us and for our quote-unquote creation? Right. Well, to me, this was, it was a hard one to put out there at number 10. Like, it was almost Creed and that, and uh, well, I'm glad that we got to discuss yeah. both of them. So, Jeff, what is your number nine? Uh, Mad Max Fury Road, which has been a, a huge critical favorite uh, this year, it's yeah. been on the top of a lot of critics' lists. Uh, got ten Academy Award nominations, so it's a big, you know, player in that realm uh, as well. And you know, it really just, uh, again, a film that could be higher on the list because ultimately it is just this bold vision from director George Miller, who made the three previous Mad Max films, and then through the '90s he. Uh, like he made the Babe sequel, Babe Pig yeah, in the City. He I directed that. Was a really that. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. you uh, see a lot of Babe Pig in the City in Mad Max. <laughs> <laughs> and then he made that animated film, Happy Feet. So, oh, okay. uh, and he also in the early '90s made Lorenzo's Oil. So he went from like this action director in the '80s to exploring different genres through the '90s, and now he's returned. And not only has he returned back to this genre and this specific franchise, but I revisited the first three before seeing Fury Road. And with the first, second, and third Mad Max, you would see a definitive growth in production value, as well as just his general vision of this world. And it was just, it was sort of the logical next step each time. And this one, you know, it comes nearly 30 years later from the third Mad Max film. It's not just the logical next step, it's like light years ahead. And so Fury Road is just this, uh, it's this blockbuster scale but it's really at its heart this art house movie. And so when you're combining that auteur nature of a very specific vision and Warner Brothers as a studio isn't meddling at all, they're just letting George Miller do what he wants to do, including you know, having a uh, flame-throwing guitar player. I, know. I mean, just this bizarre kind of thing. And it's just the whole uh, hyper-kinetic style of the whole piece. But then ultimately what allowed the whole thing to resonate beyond all that style wasn't even necessarily the character of Mad Max, but it was really Furiosa, the character played by Charlize Theron. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's a it's a powerful heroine performance, really on par with Ripley from the Alien series, uh, Sigourney Weaver. And there's just such an emotionally rich element to her character and the redemption she's seeking as a person and as a community that she's left behind that she's trying to rescue against this very domineering, you know, uh, warlord mm -hmm. who's basically controlling the existing population within this, you know, desert post-apocalyptic region. And so just uh, the arc of her character was very fascinating. So just it, it resonated emotionally, thematically, and then just eye-popping as a visual experience uh, makes it a very easy choice to put in the top 10 as well as understand why uh, critics pretty much universally uh, were, fell in love with it so much as they did. So Mad Max Free Road is number nine. From a, this is not on my list. Um, 
because there wasn't enough talking, obviously, for me. Um, no, but there's <laughs> yeah, there is there, there isn't a lot of talking in there it. There wasn't yeah. enough conversation to, for me to jump into. But uh, I I saw it and I and I from a film. There's some movies, and I'm going to talk about a couple on here that uh, on my list, but that I watch and I'm like, I have no idea how they made that. Like I understand right. filmmaking from a base standpoint and maybe a little bit more than the average Joe, but like from this, there was, it was so stunning to watch and such a spectacle that I was like, this is obviously fantastic. Um, but for me, like the story was a little bit took maybe like third seat from where I would, I, I didn't, I was sort of like not guessing where it was going to go, but for me, mm-hmm. I was sort of like, Oh, okay. I see where they're heading with this. And that kind of took me out of it a little bit. Although the visuals definitely kept me, from a popcorn, you know, movie kind of watcher, it kept me engaged the whole time. And then, but it, it kind of, I don't know, there's something about it that kind of left me wanting more that made it not really make my list. But I definitely, Charlie Theron, I, I will praise as long as the day is long because mm-hmm. man, she was fantastic in it and her character specifically. And you don't really see that many roles like that for women. And I know this is a big sort of hot button topic these days or whatever. And, uh, but I, I, I'm really glad that characters like Furiosa exist and yeah. because you're right. She did in my mind overshadow the Mad Max character as far as being intricate and interesting and layered. And I think by uh, design, really? Yeah. I, I think it was very intentional. Uh, I think it, th- that character's story is the story that Miller wanted to tell interesting. and Mad Max was sort of the inroad to get to that yeah. story. Yeah. In fact, I mean, he, he He's since said he's not going to make it, but for a while he had an idea for a independent Furiosa film as a follow up. But I would totally he's seventy that. years old, which yeah. in and of itself is amazing that a seventy year old man made this movie. No joke. Um, and really putting a lot of young action directors to shame. But you know, to, to the point about the story, one of the critiques of people who have had issues with it, one of them was it felt like the story was too thin. I heard one description say it just felt like the third act of a three-act story. Yeah. And that, that, for me, was one of the things I actually appreciated, that it wasn't overcomplicated, that we didn't get into the minutia and the backstory of this world and how it came to be. And yeah. uh, and to me, it was just it was a very simple narrative through line that I could then really live in this visual experience and then also just stay connected to the emotional core of each of these characters Furiosa most especially. And so for me, I actually thought the simplicity of the narrative ended up being a strength uh, so that you could uh, explore just so much, you know, from a visual standpoint. So Mad Max Fury Road, my number nine. Number nine. Um, at some point, we're going to jump in with another musical interlude. Do you want to wait till after eight? Yeah, we'll, yeah let's go okay. through eight. Okay. My number nine is a, a movie that was not really on my radar much at all, but I kept hearing so much about it and I was... Like anything, I'm just sort of like, okay, I'll, I'll check this out. Because people kept saying, like, this is right up your alley. And I hate it when people are right. Because I like to be a little bit of a rebellious uh, character. But really, when it comes down to it... Um, you don't like to be predictable. predictable but we're Jeff. all predictable to some degree. <laughs> we, especially the older we get. Yeah. We, we have the things we like. So my number nine uh, is me and Earl and the Dying Girl. I have no idea how to tell this story. I don't even know how to start it. This is the story of my senior year of high school and how it destroyed my life. Your father and I want to talk to you about something sad. Rachel Kushner has been diagnosed with leukemia. That sucks. It sucks. It sucks quite a bit. You might be someone who could make Rachel feel better. I don't need your stupid pity. I'm not here because I pity you. I'm actually here because my mom is making me. (laughs) It's actually worse. Which is an independent film. And ever since uh, sort of Juno hit, Big, mm-hmm. 
back uh, 2008 or 2007, I believe, um, with the quote, so cute or so indie and cute it hurts kind of style. There, there have been a slew of these types of films um, striving to do the same thing. And uh, some may argue that me and Earl and the Dying Girl is, is one of those films. But I disagree. Uh, this film about a high school senior played uh, wonderfully by Thomas Mann, an unknown to me. Uh, this character is an amateur filmmaker and a bit of a social butterfly who uh, prides himself on being, quote, just the right amount of friendly with every social class in high school uh, without ruffling anyone's feathers or really making a commitment to any one specifically, except for his best friend, who is Earl in the title, Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Um, but, uh, oh, I lost my place. Here we go. Uh, except when his neighbor, Rachel, who is the Dying Girl, uh, played by Olivia Cook, is diagnosed with leukemia and his mother... Uh, forces him to befriend her in the short time she may have left. Um, so he does so begrudgingly, and it brings along his best friend, Earl, uh, played brilliantly and hilarious by uh, R.J. Seiler, a guy I was not familiar with. Um, one of my favorite performances of 2015, probably. Uh, just everything the guy said, I, I cracked up laughing. But uh, So the story plays out in a lot of ways, as you would, you would expect, and I'm not going to spoil anything, but... Uh, it did have some unexpected turns and tonally it has shades of uh, three guys that of course resonate with me. Wes Anderson. Um, there's some Woody Allen even in it. There's Spike Jones influence in it. Um, so if you know me, you know, I had zero problems with this, uh, but above all else, it's an absolute delight from start to finish. Um, uh, it was one of those that I kept waiting for it to get sort of tired as the story progressed. Um, but I really, and then it was over. Like I was really engaged and actually quite moved um, by the outcome. And just the the sort of wham-bam storytelling, like, you know, I'm this person and we do this. And, you know, the, the way the way the sort of narrator takes over, you sort of expect that to stall out. And and to me, uh, the story just kept getting more and more interesting. And um, there, there are a series of sort of vignette films that are made in the movie that were so entertaining to me. Uh, the, the main character, Thomas Mann, and, and his, his buddy, R.J. Seiler's character, Earl, make these little joke films for themselves based on actual films, but they're just puns off of that. And uh, and they're so entertaining. Like, just watching them by, they're online, you can watch all the ones on the DVD, all the ones they've made separately, and they're so funny to me. Um, but then they decide to make one, obviously, for... Or not obviously, but they decide to make one for Rachel, who's, uh, who's sort of... Uh, plagued with this disease and doesn't know how much time she might have left just to sort of lift her spirits. And that's kind of sets this whole story forward. But, uh, above all else, it's, it's an, it's a delight. I, I really enjoy this movie. It really stuck with me and I've revisited it and I feel like it's gotten better, uh, over rewatching. It has some genuinely funny moments alongside the right amount of sincerity and heart that is often lacking in films about high schoolers, honestly. So, uh, yeah, that's my number nine, me and Earl and the dying girl. Yeah, every year there's always at least one movie that is a quintessential Nick Flora choice <laughs> that I just did not like. I figured, I figured. And this is that one. Um, now, I, I will say this, you know, in years past, I think another version of that was The Way, Way Back. Yes. Um, what I will say for me, Earl and the Dying Girl, is even though I thought it was too precious for its own good, followed sort of that Sundance formula a little too self-consciously, uh, 
you do see the potential of this young filmmaker. And I, you know, I'm looking forward to, I don't even know what his name is, but whatever he comes up with in the future, I think, I think we see, here's a guy who loves films, uh, per that sort of ongoing, you know, through line of the films that the two guys are making throughout it. Um, but then also, uh, the other thing I liked about this film was, uh, that, that main trio cast, particularly, Earl and the Dying Girl. Yeah. Those two performances in particular, I think we see very strong young talents here. And I didn't actually didn't feel that the material rose up to their level of talent. Interesting. Um, or to whatever degree, you know, uh, the film worked, it was because of those performances. And so, uh, so it was exciting to watch on that level as well. So uh, a bit more of a mixed reaction. I guess I can't say that I, you know, hated it outright. Certainly it wasn't that strong of a feeling about it, but it, it ultimately didn't work for me, but there is some positive elements within that, that you're, I'm excited to see what these people do in the future. Right. Well, you know, we're all wrong about some stuff. (laughs) No, there there is funny. Like I was making this list. I I have a couple ideas of what I sort of thought was like, I don't, I'm not going to ask Jeff beforehand, but I have a feeling that maybe this wasn't his cup of tea, which is yeah. totally fine, which is why I like this dialogue mm-hmm. so much. So your number eight, is that where we are? Number eight, yeah. So uh, when we opened the podcast, I had mentioned there's a film uh, that I had ranked when I made this top 10 list back at the beginning of the year that now having re-seen the movie, I would move up to a higher slot. I'm not going to say how high I would move it up. I'm not going to get into that detail. <laughs> but right now at number eight and it should be higher, is Inside Out. Yeah, it should uh, be higher. It, it really should be. And it's one of those things where I saw it recently again. It was only the second time I'd seen it. So, you know, in the actual calendar year 2015, I only saw the film once. And when I did, of course, hugely impressed. Instantly one of Pixar's best films. That was clear from the outset. But I also think as I watched it recently a second time, you begin to, for as much as you... Uh, expect greatness from Pixar it's almost like because you expect it you're not as amazed when you see it mm-hmm. and then to one of your earlier points about how how you start to see things a lot more clearly on a second viewing the, just the pure genius of this film really stood out the the construction of every single element you know within this child's brain and just how not only clever it is, but just purely, I mean, truly ingenious how they came up with what the construct of a brain and a personality would look like and uh, all those like five different islands and what they represented. Um, And so, but, well, in fact, you know, in the film, we see how memories can change, you know, uh, one, you know, uh, as as a person grows and as a child gets older, what was once a, you know, a happy memory maybe evolves and changes. And so in a sense, that's bearing out here. <laughs> as I revisit this film as a whole, I begin to see, oh, my, my, my thinking of it is changing and even expanding beyond what I already initially had, which was really nothing but high praise. And then just the emotional power of the film. Uh, when I was watching it again recently, I was probably, you know, an emotional puddle for at least... 50% of the film Absolutely. just back and forth between highly entertained and just thrilled by what I'm watching to emotions just bubbling up very quickly. And then if you haven't seen it, I won't go into detail, but really when it comes to the emotional climax of the film, I, I was just, I was a mess. I mean, I was weeping 
And it really, the, the climax of this film is, is as emotionally powerful as that first five to 10 minutes of Up. You know, everybody references that opening sequence of Up as, oh my gosh, that just wrecks me. And the climax of this film wrecks me on an equal level. And I guess maybe it should come as no surprise that Pete Docter directed both of those right. movies. And ultimately, what I, what I loved most about this film is actually the first time I watched it. Very early on, uh, I was thinking, okay, I want... I was about to go into detail, and I won't, just in case people haven't seen it, but... It could have gone in one of two trajectories about what it was saying about different emotions and, and how we express emotions and are these emotions good or bad in our lives. And I was thinking, you know, this really is only going to be true if it goes a certain way. But if it goes that way, it's going to go against sort of conventional cultural thinking. And I thought, man, I wonder if it's going to be brave enough to do that. And not only was it brave enough to do that, but it showed uh, how dysfunctional we often are when we ignore certain emotions in our lives and that embracing all of our emotions is true functionality and that we shouldn't suppress or view things negatively, but every emotion on, on you know, the extremes of the emotional spectrum, they all have not only have their place, but they're all necessary to being healthy people. And how this communicates that, particularly through this coming-of-age story of this little girl, uh, Man, it just gave me chills. It you know made, made me weep, and uh, and it's just so I so appreciated the truth of what this film was communicating thematically about us as people that we as a culture often forget because we're afraid to go to certain places emotionally. And this film is saying not only should you not be afraid to, but if you don't go to certain places emotionally, that will that will damage you. So um, just. It's profound. I mean, it's, it's really this profound movie uh, that just happens to be made for all audiences. Yeah. You know, so um, for all those reasons, Inside Out should probably be higher than number eight on my list. But for right now, it's number eight. I will say for a while, Inside Out was number one for me. Mm. Um, and mm -hmm. it has since changed, but it, that doesn't mean, that doesn't say anything about the movie. There are some movies that, and I thought about this a lot, but there's, I've seen this film a, a number of times, but there are some movies that like, when when they release, they they sort of set their place in the pop culture world for years to come as a reference point. This movie will be a touchstone for, um, not to overstate it, but for humankind. I feel like yeah. there are so many, there's so much to unpack from it thematically, um, and just like you said, the way that it can help us understand our emotions and the way that we shouldn't ignore certain emotions just so other ones can thrive. And we shouldn't just be happy all the time or whatever it is. I feel like there is so much that goes against the flow of how we did, have done things for years that it will be a, this movie will be used as like a teaching tool and to help it's already helping children uh, understand how emotions work. And, and not only children, but even just, you know, to your point, it becomes this quick go-to touchstone because emotions are so complex and hard yeah. to articulate to somebody else when you're trying to do that. It, already has, and I think will continue to be this touchstone where people will say, well, you don't like an inside out. That's yeah, what yeah. I'm feeling. Who's it's controlling like that. your brain right now, Jeff? <laughs> but I've said, I literally have friends that I've said that to, like, who's controlling your brain? And they're like, right. oh, and it helps you sort of keep yourself in check as far as mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm letting fear control my, my emotions right now. Like maybe, you know, maybe we should balance it. Who's out driving? Exactly. Yeah. And it really does put, 
Yeah, I, I don't even know how. I would. I could talk to t- Pete Doctor for twelve hours straight. I have so many questions. I think that guy's a, a truly one of Pixar's best. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah that's an excellent choice. Um, well, then my number eight is uh, maybe the other one that I would have guessed that Jeff Houston either <laughs> didn't see or didn't like. But I'm gonna go for it anyway because um, uh, because I really really enjoyed it as much as I sort of was like I don't know if this is for me. Um, my number eight is uh, Dope. You go to high school in Inglewood. You think you're going to get into Harvard? I'm from a poor, crime-filled neighborhood, raised by a single mother, don't know my dad, blah, blah. It's cliche. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Malcolm Adekambi. I'm a straight-A student with nearly perfect SAT scores. You probably got, like, one of those photogenic brains. <laughs> you mean photographic memory? What'd I just say? I mean, yeah, you, you said it. Yeah, I Reiterating. I play in a punk band. The, the quick sort of story tagline is it's about um, the character Malcolm, played by Shamik Moore, uh, one of my favorite performances of the year. This guy is one of those where you sort of feel like you're seeing somebody, in my mind anyway, that I was like, oh, I think this guy's going to do some really interesting things. Who uh, This character Malcolm is a self described Af- African American geek uh, who uh, is growing up in South Central LA who is in love with the era of 90s hip hop and the culture that surrounds it, um, right down to the flat top and the vintage Air Jordans, which, you know, if they're already playing on nostalgia of my era a little bit, so I'm already in love with this. But uh, he spends most of his time hanging out with his two best friends while trying to sort of, you know, the normal high school uh, hangups in movies, uh, avoid the jocks, gang members, drug dealers who populate his world, you know, normal stuff we all dealt with. Uh, but Dope has all the story beats, like I said, from the classic hood dramas like Boys in the Hood uh, with these drug dealers in rough neighborhoods, gangs, drugs, money, and of course the love interest. Uh, who is uh, being pursued by the main bad boy uh, drug dealer. Once again, very relatable to me as a white person who grew up in Arkansas. Um, but Malcolm and his geek pals sort of find themselves, uh, m- you know, make one big chance decision to break out of their social class at school that quickly breaks bad and leads to unexpected scenario after unexpected scenario that, that, that propels this film forward. And uh, it's, I was worried throughout that it was going to be so chock full uh, packed to the brim with sort of plot points and twists and turns that it was going to turn me off. But instead, it sort of like elevated it to this new level where I got excited to see like, oh, I really don't know where this is going to go next. And uh, it's chock full of these clever com- comedy bits and great music. The soundtrack I, I have worked out to several times. It's really good. And an insightful point of view, honestly, that really uh, made it stand out in the year of film for me. Um, it's really hard to make a movie about high schoolers, like I said earlier, with a u- unique point of view. And one that generations other than the one that it's targeting targeting can follow without feeling like it's pandering. Um, like you're not gonna watch this and not understand the references uh, to social media outlets you've never heard of as a 35 year old man, uh, because most of the references are to stuff from the mid 90s, early 90s. And essentially, the film is about not judging someone just by their background or where they grew up. Uh, and at its core. It is just a, it's a really fun movie. Uh, in my mind, it's equal parts Ferris Bueller and Menace to Society, which I never <laughs> would have put those two together. But it really shines, and it's star Shamik Moore, carry, who carries this film, a virtual unknown, I really think we'll, we'll see uh, big things come. And for me, honestly, the, the, it, it, it ends perfectly, too, if you stay long enough throughout the credits, where it plays uh, Digital Underground's Humpty Dance, performed uh, the dance performed by Shamik Moore in the credits, which just... I've watched several times and puts a smile on my face. If I'm having a bad day, I'll just watch that because it's fantastic. So it, it has this, it has, it does everything that I kind of want. It's, it's a fun movie. It's sort of like a, 
a journey into a coming of age of sorts, but also just not being afraid to break out of sort of your normal um, societal norms of the social class you've been put in, but at the same time to to not be judgmental of sort of the people around us and and not size people up just from their outward appearance. And uh, so yeah, that's I, dope is my number eight. Have you seen it? I see a lot of movies every year, but I can't see every movie <laughs> every year. And unfortunately, this is one that I've missed and haven't been able to catch up with. Okay. I think when it screened here in Tulsa, it like screened for a week. Uh, it was a blip. Yeah. yeah. And I had to wait for it on DVD. I was busy that week and I couldn't <laughs> get to it. And similarly, at the end of the year, I'm watching a lot of stuff uh, as a critic. And so a lot of stuff that's coming out and is very current at that moment. And so uh, Dope is just, it's a film that I've not been able to catch up with, but I've I'm wanting to, in particular because I've heard a lot of good stuff about it as well. And not to mention, you know, in the the current cultural zeitgeist, we've got the whole Oscars so white controversy. Right. Not that this kind of movie would necessarily be an Oscar nominee, no. regardless of what the racial composition would be. Uh, I, I mention that because from what I've heard about this film, the people that are both on camera and behind the camera could very likely be making the Oscars less white in the future. Oh, yeah. Just because so much talent is clearly involved. I wouldn't be surprised if next year or the year after we we hear some of these these players in this film uh, you know, making waves in the the award circuit for sure. Yeah, and 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 even critics that you know who didn't put this on their top ten list, uh, almost you know to a critic, I've just heard how impressed they were by this young filmmaker who I don't know who it is, but uh, they're looking forward to more stuff from him. And yeah, uh, uh, I so I wrote it down. Yeah, I forget the guy who makes the movie, but but anyway, so there's just there's a lot to be impressed with, and so that it's a movie that I want to catch up with because clearly we're going to be hearing more. Uh, from the talent involved yeah. with this movie. So it's good to have this as kind of a touchstone of here's where a lot of them really got their breakout. And the good thing, because it was a Sundance release um, and didn't really have much of a play in theaters, the, the upside of that is it's on Netflix right now, mm. and it's also on DVD and Blu-ray, so you can get it at Redbox or whatever. And it's absolutely uh, worth checking out. Excellent. So... Musical interlude number two. Yeah, so uh, this musical interlude is one uh, for a film that I don't think is going to show up on either of our top tens, but it's for the film The Intern. Uh, and the reason I've got the score here is it's it's composed by Theodore Shapiro, and it's from the film written and directed by Nancy Myers. And if you're familiar with Nancy Myers, she's basically sort of carrying the Nora Ephron torch moving yes. forward. And uh, this was just one of those really pleasant surprises of the year. I can't say I was shocked. I mean, I always look forward to Nancy Meyers' films, but you never know if it's just going to feel very formulaic and pat and like, well, that was okay. This really sort of exceeded my expectations. And uh, it was really, uh, it's a very rewarding emotional experience. Yeah. Um, and it's Robert De Niro adorable. Who, yeah. who would have thought, you know? So, um, so anyway, the score, I've listened to this score a lot since, uh, since I bought it after the film opened, just because it makes you feel good. And it's, it's very well composed. And so that's why, even though it's not an Oscar-nominated score or film, if, uh, if you just like listening to music that makes you feel good, the score to The Intern is exactly that.
will say one thing about Nancy Myers is that one thing you can guarantee there will be uh, a gorgeous kitchen involved. Absolutely. Well, there are <laughs> websites and web pages about the kitchens. Like, w- which Nancy Myers kitchen are you? Are you serious? There's, there's actual. There's <laughs> of a quiz. Course there is. Yeah. Well, every like every time, even if I'm in a hotel or or I catch a Nancy Myers movie on on cable. I'm I'm always blown away by the set design. I'm Absolutely. always just like, oh, you want to be in that home. <laughs> you want to sit at that island in that amazing kitchen with Meryl Streep and talk about life over a giant chunky. You're wearing a giant chunky sweater probably, mm-hmm. and you're cupping like some kind of warm drink. She does this really well, and I feel like I really like Nancy Myers because you can kind of tell she has a very stylized form, and you can kind of tell when a Nancy Myers movie is happening. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a warm and fuzzy feeling. Absolutely, it's great. Yep. Uh, so I'm glad you highlighted that because that movie, as we were talking earlier, is like. Not a bad movie. Like, you know, it's, it's actually those, a really good it's, it's, movie. It's not going to make a bunch of top 10 lists, but like, it's one of those that, like, and I will encourage dudes as well. Like, if your wife wants to watch, girlfriend wants to watch it, watch it. Cause it honestly, like we were saying earlier, it's not a cheesy love story. It's a really enjoyable, um, like you said, it's very, uh, it's very, it just, it's very satisfying, uh, just seeing these characters go through what they go through. And the way it ends up, it's enjoyable. Well, and actually to put a real big credential attached to praising this movie, Quentin Tarantino named it one of his favorite best films of 2015. What a now, weirdo. Tarantino is an iconoclast when it comes to personal top 10 lists. Like he had the Lone Ranger on his top 10 yeah. the year that was out. He loves American Idol. <laughs> so he does. He, wanted, he was a guest on American Idol but, once. Oh, oh, I don't watch the show. So, but, like but yeah, but I mean, he, he loves this movie. He thinks it's one of De Niro's best performances ever. So for whatever that's worth, um, you know, it, it, it's certainly not something you yeah. would associate with Tarantino at all. But, uh, but yeah, a very rewarding emotional experience and a perfect uh, date night, yeah. you know, home rental. It's got good laughs in it. Like, mm-hmm. it really is. Like, it was a surprise to me how much I was like, am I liking this movie? You know? Yeah. And the emotions aren't cheap. It's no. not a manip- cheaply manipulative film. It actually resonates very strongly. I would say the only thing that would keep people from liking it, which is this is something that I, I have conversations with with friends. If you don't like Anne Hathaway... Uh, this is going to be a problem for you because she's in it a lot. But yeah. there's a lot of people who are like, I don't like Anne Hathaway, which I, I don't understand. I go back and forth with her. And to me, this is a strong representation of her talent. And she is extremely likable. She doesn't, some people think she comes off a little too cold or a little, you know, just a little too formal. Yeah. And she's very warm here, very vulnerable here. And uh, yeah, so I think even for the Hathaway doubters, this could make you, I don't know if change your mind, but at least expand it to think, oh, yeah, she can do more than I thought she could. For those Hatha haters out there. <laughs> right. Uh, all right, Jeff, we are down to uh, number seven. What is yours? It is the film uh, that we, we opened the podcast with the score to this film, Steve Jobs. What do you do? You're not an engineer. You're not a designer. You can't put a hammer to a nail. I built the circuit board. The graphical interface was stolen. So how come 10 times in a day, I read Steve Jobs as a genius? What do you do? Musicians play their instruments. I play the orchestra. For as much praise as this garnered upon its initial release, uh, its subsequent failure at the box office, which it was really kind of fascinating because it opened in limited release and it had the highest per screen average of any movie this year. 
its first two limited release weekends. And usually when that happens, that means when it goes wide, it just continues yeah. on that trajectory and it just tanked. Right. And curiously, after garnering all this praise about how it revolutionizes the biopic, then it seemed like critics, as they continued to talk about it moving forward, they started hedging their opinions a little bit. I know. And I think they began to... I, I actually think now it's become uh, possibly the most underappreciated film of 2015. And what's really revolutionary about it is, so it's another screenplay from Aaron Sorkin. Uh, we all know Aaron Sorkin. I think if you're listening to this podcast, you know who you he know is. And it's very much a Sorkin-esque expression of these people. But uh, what's interesting about this movie is the whole movie, everything you see, none of it ever happened, but all of it's true. And so he, Sorkin said, I, want, I don't want to, tell his life story from you know from uh cradle to grave right. or just the traditional biopic i want to paint a portrait of the man mm -hmm. and steve wozniak who was obviously one of uh steve jobs uh main collaborators in the early days of apple has basically agreed and said you know yeah i mean this is a completely fictionalized narrative but this is completely 100 true he was a consultant uh, on the film yeah so uh, this represents steve's jobs this represents me this represents all the people that the film focuses on very accurately and so and so what i love about it though is so sorkin got his start in the world of theater he was a playwright before he got into television and film and basically the script he wrote here is if he was confined to the stage. It really reads like a play and how not only reads like a play, but how you would structure a story like this for the stage. And a lot of times when we see stage adaptations become movies, we, the films try and get away from that kind of structure and they try to make it more like a movie and some are more successful than others. But this one unabashedly said, we're going to do this like a play, acts one, two, and three. And uh, and then particularly, not only do we not just see that really, that kind of structure in movies at all, but particularly with a, a, a real life biopic kind of story. It just revolutionizes that whole thing. And so it doesn't hit all the familiar beats that we're used to with biopics. And so that in and of itself is really what places it as one of the 10 best films of the year is just how revolutionary that structure is. And then just seeing how effective that structure was. And of course, the performances from top to bottom are phenomenal. Um, career best work from most of the people involved, certainly for Seth Rogen, it's a career best yeah, performance who, who plays Wozniak. Michael Fassbender's powerful uh, as Steve Jobs. Yeah, Kate Winslet, uh, Jeff Daniels, yeah. uh, great performance as well. Um, so just the whole cast, it, it's, it's, it, it's a volatile experience often. It, it's highly energized, even though it's just uh, the structure is each third of the film takes place at the debut of a major technological advancement uh, throughout Jobs' career. And so it's uh, it's one of those, you know, backstage right before the big presentation as he interacts with all these different key people in his life. And, uh, and so the energy of that, with it being in such essentially a confined space, for it to be so energized speaks to certainly uh, uh, the, the energy that you get from... Aaron Sorkin dialogue, but then Danny Boyle is a director yeah. who has always brought energy to concepts that would seem, uh, you know, how does that come alive? Particularly the film uh, 27 Hours, 
Um, so just it's the right talent coming together to tell this story. Uh, unfortunately, it just it, I got, didn't have a big enough star in the role. Well, what's interesting is this was produced by Universal Studios. It was originally supposed to be produced by Sony. And uh, if you remember a year ago, there was a big Sony hack. A lot of their emails were made yeah. public. And the whole progress of how Steve Jobs went from being greenlit by Sony to being ditched, the whole uh, it kind of came down to it was originally supposed to be directed by David Fincher, starring Christian Bale. And then wow. both of them had to leave the project. And when Bale left the project, that's when Sony gave up on it because they said, we need his star power or else we don't think this is going to sell. And when those emails were first read, a lot of you know, film writers were like, oh, that's so cynical. It, it, it sells the audience short. And uh, that's just, you know, it, it's very studio type of thinking and how little minded that was. And it basically bore out. Yeah. It, it bore out. I mean, the performance is great. That's unquestionable. But it tanked because it didn't have a big name that drew people to the theater, unfortunately. So hopefully this will find a life at some point because it's just it you just don't see a movie like this that often if at all mm -hmm. and uh and, and so and, and then just i mean he's a, he's a cultural icon and so just to to see what made him tick and how he was and how he interacted i mean it, his legend is already sort of infamous to a good degree but to see it all depicted and unfold as this film portrays it is very compelling and really a mesmerizing experience. So that's why I have Steve Jobs at number seven. And it's what her, his life and legacy is woven throughout our lives. It's literally on our this table right now. Right. And so to in, in those moments where he comes out on stage in his black turtleneck and his dad jeans mm -hmm. and, and explains what's coming up next and the anticipation of that is iconic now. Like we mm -hmm. know that. Like we we've seen those announcements. So like it's such a brilliant entry point to mm -hmm. tell this story. And I think Danny Boyle is an inspired choice, mostly because in the hands of somebody else, it could be super boring. But right. Like you said, he is so good with energy and flow and, and sort of action and, uh, and keeping that going. And, and even with the, with the camera movements and all the different stuff, it's really fascinating. And I think maybe Fassbender's best performance, mm -hmm. like he really got into that character to the point where usually when somebody plays a biopic or plays a, a, a titular character like that. I'm like, I am aware that Michael Fassbender is Steve Jobs. I am aware <laughs> right. that you're in the back of your brain. That program in my brain stopped running about five minutes in. Mm -hmm. I was just like, I was in it because he was this guy. And I, I think it is a shame because, but I think that a lot of people sort of are, are in the, the future will tell, but I think that people were turned off by the fact that it wasn't sort of a, we that we understand because we know the the cradle to grave story, mm -hmm. and so I think maybe when word got out that it was it was more because I when I didn't know what it was when I went and saw it in the theater and it and it when I figured it out it made me so excited to be mm -hmm. like I see what we're doing here because mm -hmm. it played out in real time in like the half hour leading up to these announcements and right um, yeah I was blown away by it and I and I'm I it was higher on my list and and, and it's not in my top ten and I. Now I don't know why after hearing you talk about it, I'm like, sure. yeah, but I think I was also susceptible to that sort of like, oh, maybe it's not that great because I really enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, and every time it's been up for an, you know, an award this season, which is not as many as it should be. Right. I'm like right on um, and excited about it. It was, it was, it's, a, it's my number 12, I will say. So I definitely give it my whole heart uh, recommendation, but um, 
That's a great. I wanted to talk about it at least a little. I'm glad you you said all. You basically said everything that I wanted to say about it, even though it wasn't in my top ten. So it was a very hard one to take out. Yeah, and it's one of those that I think again when you. Uh, as we were talking about earlier, when you understand the context of a movie and what it's doing and you go back and watch it again, yeah. you're just like, oh my gosh, this is so ingenious. In Sorkin so dialogue, dialogue annoys a lot of people. I I get lost in it. It's so artistic and and people, you know, of course, yes, they're talking faster than normal people talk and using vocabulary words that we may never use in everyday life. Mm-hmm. I am so, even like as much, as many problems as I had with the newsroom, I enjoyed sort of the, the Sorkin part of it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I feel like he, he, nobody does what he does specifically as good as him. So. And then the other compelling thing is that you mentioned, you know, this is uh, technological touchstones of our life, right? And of our generation. And this film gets into the struggle of debuting those technologies when they debuted. And, uh, and, and as you mentioned, Wozniak was a consultant on, and so, and so the struggles of, of getting these particular pieces of technology out into the market and debuting them are explored here as well. So even just whether you're interested in Steve Jobs as a person or not, it just it becomes compelling to see the struggles to make these advancements that we now kind of take for granted totally. a little bit. Yeah. And to see that he wasn't that he's a flawed character. Because so many times right. he's sort of deitized or whatever. And I, it's important to see not only is he a flawed character as a person, and he has his own demons he de- he de- he deals with in the film, um, but also as a businessman. He has some massive failures, mm-hmm. and I, I felt I, that was the most interesting part to me is to see like, oh, we've totally blipped over this as a society because we're so obsessed with the new app or the new you know update. Right. So, uh, a, an inspired choice, Jeff. Once again, mm-hmm. uh, even though you haven't seen Dope, I'll forgive it. <laughs> right. um, no, uh, my number seven is a, a movie that I'm assuming that we'll talk about again. Um, it's uh, The Revenant. What happened? We did what we had to do. He was buried right. My boy, and he took him from me, you understand? He's afraid. He knows how far I came to find him. I ain't afraid to die anymore. I've done it already. I went in, I saw it late. I saw it um, after a lot of the hubbub, and I sort of went in biased honestly to be like okay show me what you got and i was immediately blown away immediately like from the get-go just drawn in um uh Inuritu is i am not afraid to use the word genius i i'm you know last year we talked a lot about birdman and mm-hmm. it still resonates with me that movie does and uh but i was blown away by the revenant for the same reasons everyone else was um you know the cinematography uh is breathtaking um the way it was filmed with only natural light uh like knowing that kind of stuff it makes a difference. Um, the incredible performances, you know, up, of course, especially from Leonardo DiCaprio, but all the utility players as well. Um, like, there's not a there's not a sour grape in the bunch for sure. And uh, to mix my metaphors, <laughs> uh, but if you don't already know, The Revenant um, is essentially about frontiersmen on a fur trading expedition in the 1820s, um, based on a true story, actually, based on real a true people, story. Yeah. Um, which is. I was immediately, I didn't know what era it was in and I had to look it up while I was watching the movie because I, I was, I didn't know. And, it, mm-hmm. and to, I didn't know whether I, I kind of figured out it, it was America at some point, but it's a, it's a time that we sort of skip over. We tend to go in film from revolutionary times, uh, to civil Hamilton, war, to civil war. This and is then, 1820s. Yes. Yeah. So it, it was interesting to sort of see, um, but it's a spur trading expedition, uh, in the 1820s who, uh, fights for survival, uh, 
Glass, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, is mauled by a bear very famously now as people are talking about this bear attack. Deservedly so. It's an amazing scene. And he's left for dead by members of his own hunting team. So essentially the movie propels forward from there. That's sort of all I'll say about the the plot. But I do... The whole time I was watching it, in this pretty packed theater, midday, Mm -hmm. on a a weekend, I was like, why do we like movies like this? Mm -hmm. You know? Why do we sit and watch characters physically struggle, emotionally struggle over and over again against death, disease, bear attacks. Why do we like, what, what is it? Like there are so many movies that sort of have this, this sort of, um, the, this is the story we're telling. We're, we're going to watch somebody, you know, cast away or whatever it is. These, these people struggle, you know, to overcome insurmountable odds. And to me, this movie specifically, this movie is about, in my mind, the true American spirit. It's a, but it, more than that, it is the true human spirit because Glass, who's played by DiCaprio, goes through something horrific and then something worse. Um, right. And right when you think he's going to give up, he decides that he has found a reason to survive. And it fuels him throughout the entire movie, even if ultimately um, that reason to live, uh, which is revenge, sort of gets thwarted. Uh, it has served its purpose, which is to keep him going long enough to to get where he needs to go. And I was completely moved by DiCaprio's performance, and I was expecting an amazing performance because he he is one of the best actors we have. And uh, but especially because his acting in ninety percent of the film is without speaking, and I didn't mm-hmm. realize this uh, going in. But his throat is cut in the bear attack, and his vocal cords damaged, and he's alone most of the film. So there's not a lot of people for him to talk to. Uh, but so what could have been long stretched into a yawn of a film uh, about a dude crawling through the the prairie lands of of uh, the Louisiana Purchase uh, was instead this powerful, engaging triumph about these early settlers, who, which I said earlier is a story that we don't hear that often, and it's a reminder that our country used to be this wild and turbulent nation that. Um, and that wasn't that long ago. That's what's so crazy. It really wasn't that long ago that we were, it was literally this wild west where you didn't know what was around every corner. And there, it wasn't just this place where you could expect, you know, a TJ Maxx and a, you know, and a quick trip around every corner. It was literally this, this wild nation that had to be tamed. And this is sort of so fascinating from a historical standpoint. Well, and if I'm, not, if I'm not mistaken, I think not only was this, you know, early American Western frontier, I think it was actually pre-Lewis and Clark. I think it's 20 years after Lewis and Clark. Oh, is it? okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's right around that time, which uh, I'm, I would love to so see. So still largely uncharted. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So, um, and so Leonardo DiCaprio having, like, if you have the skills of being able to track something, or these were like, th- these were uh skills that that really meant something you know mm-hmm. you could track something you could tell you know without reading a compass you knew which direction all this stuff that we're sort of like you know we're so modernized and, and so I, I just realized like man if this is what being a man is i am I, you know i to speak to steve jobs thanks for gps on my phone dude because i don't know <laughs> what i do without it but uh, to me uh the mbb performance was uh the performance is not being given its due to in my in my mind is donald gleason uh, who's my best friend, right. uh, friend of the show, John Gleason, <laughs> as Captain Andrew Henry, uh, phenomenal performance, and uh, and honestly, Will Poulter, who played uh, a, a young member of this uh, fur traders group, Bridger, um, who sort of partnered with Tom Hardy, um, who I only knew I think from 
like a Jennifer Aniston comedy that came out a couple of years ago. We're the Millers um, as sort of this. But he, I mean, that movie has its plus, but he's the best part of that movie. Hmm. But, but he's phenomenal in this. In my mind, yeah. I was like, is this guy really going to go these places dramatically? And he did. He's uh, did a phenomenal job. So I just want to. Well, it's even through his character that in a, in a brutal film with that has just a few notes of grace. Yes. Uh, a couple of those center around his character specifically, and they're very poignantly done. Yeah. And as much as I love Tom Hardy and I think he did a great job, my only my only sort of criticism in the acting categories would be sort of him. I didn't really kn- know where he was landing. Like, it always bugs me when, when actors who don't normally have a Southern accent can't really hit the Southern accent. I feel like sometimes he was a little bit too British and a little bit too just non-Southern at all. And then he had and then he real Southern. It just kind of took me out of it, honestly. And he, do- he does an amazing job. Tom Hardy, definitely. But I, I think for some reason... With Mad Max and this, I was just sort of like, maybe I was expecting too much from Tom Hardy, but he really didn't deliver in the ways that I wanted him to this year. But that's the only thing that I really can say as far as the acting goes. But he still does an amazing job because you're supposed to not like this character and you really don't like this character. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's why my number seven is is uh, The Revenant. Well, and, and, and to the writer-director Alejandro Iñárritu, um, like you mentioned, you did Birdman last year. And for me, this continues... Uh, a very positive shift in his career prior to Birdman. I found his films, which include Babel, 21 Grams. Yeah. There's another one that stars Javier Bardem that I'm blanking on the title of it. Um, They were extremely pretentious movies. Uh, Just so full of their own self-importance that uh, I just, I, I actively didn't look forward to his movies, but I knew I kind of needed to see them just because they'd be a part of the film conversation. But I just, uh, I was just like, man, this guy's just, just believes in what he's saying way too much. Yeah. Um, and he's driving it home way too hard. And Birdman, that was, sh- that shifted in part because what was interesting about Birdman is the central character was struggling with his own idea of his artistic pretension. Yeah. And so you really felt it was this personal thing where he's actually, you know, Inuritu struggling with it for the first time and really becoming self-aware of himself as an artist. And so what was great about The Revenant is not only does it continue this shift away from pretense, even though the material could very easily lend itself to artistic pretension, but I actually thought he even... Uh, all the more got out of the way of the story and didn't feel like I didn't feel like he was trying to hammer home the themes of this film. Yeah. He just let it be and let the scope of the of the whole piece uh, communicate what it needed to communicate. Didn't use a lot of uh, words and you know uh, verbal driving home of the point, quote unquote. He just let the story unfold and let the characters evolve. And that's maturity as a filmmaker. And so, yeah, he's quickly gone from somebody that I did not like to now he's one of our best filmmakers. Genuinely excited about whatever he does next. And uh, yeah, these last two films are two of the best films of recent memory. Yeah, no joke. And they're Uh, back to back years, which is phenomenal. Yeah, amazing. Amazing. So that was your number seven. Seven. Number six. Right. Number six. What can you say? It's Star Wars The Force Awakens. boy. Uh, I'm not going to, you know, get into... I mean, people have talked about it 
ad nauseum. Have people seen it? <laughs> Is it getting <laughs> enough uh, press? I, I yeah. haven't seen anything. Including me. But, you know, one of the things that thrilled me right out right from the outset is, you know, J.J. Abrams, not only is he taking the reins from Lucas in a very spectacular way, but it feels like my first time watching, I was feel, it felt like Steven Spielberg had taken it from Lucas. I mean, so, you know, obviously Spielberg is probably the main influence on J.J. Abrams as a filmmaker. And you see that not only just from the, the cinematic style of how he makes films, but even the... Uh, the deep wells of emotion that he pulls and that he creates within the characters and the character dynamics. So you get all that at play. I also think it's the most cinematic entry of the whole Star Wars saga. And ultimately, it's not just continuing the mythos, it's really expanding it in very dramatic ways. And so for me, what what makes this film really great and maybe even a little underappreciated despite its blockbuster success is it's great not just because we don't have Jar Jar, we don't have Ewoks, we don't have an annoying chosen one. Um, and it's not just great just because we have more practical effects than the prequels did. It's great because we have characters that we care about again. And even though this does have the nostalgia factor of the original trio coming back, you know, 30 years later, you know, they don't show up till about a half hour. The first one doesn't show up till about a half hour in. And I was completely sold on this movie during and these char- these new characters during that first half hour to where, you know, Han, Leia, and Luke had never shown up, it wouldn't have bothered me because I was so invested in these characters. And in now granted, part of what we were invested in relates to Luke and what's happened to Luke Skywalker, but you could have told us that kind of story without involving those actual characters. You could have played in the mythos that way. And Abrams and his cast create such effective characters that um, we can move forward. uh, And regardless of how much or how little we see some of the old characters, uh, we're we're invested in Finn. We're invested in Rey. I mean, Rey. My goodness, Daisy Ridley. I can talk about her the rest of this time if you want. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, And and just um, her whole character arc was powerful. the climactic moment um, where, you know, it just gave me chills. Every time. Uh, What's interesting is uh, I've seen it three times and in in one of the screenings that I went to, uh, people would applaud whenever one of the original cast members would show up or there would be some sort of reference that was a tie-in and people would applaud that. The only new thing that the whole audience applauded was that climactic moment, which, mm-hmm. quote-unquote, spoiler alert, when she wields that lightsaber for the first time, oh, Star Wars chills. theme kicks in, that audience I was with just erupted, you know? Yeah. And so to me, that was just like, that's... J.J. did it. J.J. brought balance to the Force <laughs> again. Uh, this is the Star Wars we've been looking for. May this Force <laughs> be with us always. And... And really, and that's the thing is he didn't just um, rejuvenate the franchise, but he's uh, he set the standard for Star Wars moving forward. Not just the subsequent episodes, you know, eight and nine, but the anthology, just the entire Star Wars universe moving forward. He has set the standard. He has set the template. And that is such a high bar to try and reach because we've seen how it can falter. Yes. <laughs> and he did it. He did it. And so it's a phenomenal achievement that I think actually people 
underappreciate because it's a blockbuster and it's so part of our cultural fabric. Um, but the, and the main thing I just need to address for me is if there has been critiques of the film, it's been, eh, it's basically just the plot of the new hope redone. And that completely, uh, well, you can go to my website. I'll give the URL later. I've written on this, uh, how that is a very, not only a short-sighted read of what is going on narratively and with the characters in The Force Awakens, but it's like, have you not seen the previous six films? There are recurring motifs throughout both trilogies and with and connecting both of the trilogies because of the spirituality of the Force, which is this amalgam of our own spiritual religions here on Earth. And Lucas, one of the things he pulled from most was that, I don't know if it was Hinduism or Buddhism or whatever, but just the circular nature of, 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 of events mm -hmm. and how things always come back around. And so there's this, these recurring motifs throughout history and throughout lives and even throughout specific families and specific cultures. And so that was all, that's always been a part of the fabric. We've seen those motifs recur in the first two trilogies. So now we see them occur and people are like, oh, JJ is not that creative. No, he's actually, it's not, it's not an issue of is he repeating things, it's an issue of how well is he repeating those motifs. And to me, he, he uh, did some of those motifs better than they've ever been done. And so uh, just all hail J.J. Abrams no and just thank you for, for making Star Wars great again. And I have it at number six and it's, you know, uh, it could be higher, you know, but I, I, that's where I've got it right now. That's, I Well, we will revisit this on my list, so I won't say too much about it. I will say, you're making me think, like, even before the characters that we know and love show up, we're invested. And I love specifically that Han Solo is a little bit more of a central character. And also, he isn't just a, there to wink at the camera and be like, hey, I'm Han Solo again. Mm -hmm. See it? Hey, guys, look at me. He's there to actually be a three-dimensional, interesting character who is sort of reconciling with his life up until now in a lot of ways, stuff we saw, stuff we didn't see. Um, and he is a very centralized, important character that propels this entire series forward. Yeah. When originally he was like third tier, you know, in right. the originals and stuff. And he's just really there for comic relief, which he is, does that very well here. But also Harrison Ford, like, like hats off to you, buddy. I like, know. Like really, I mean, uh, so that, that that was what made me think. And I, well, I he's so, he's so invested in this character because he actually, you know, you know, he rather famously wanted Han Solo to die in Return of the Jedi. Right. And he was just, he always loved being associated with Indiana Jones, but was always annoyed with the association with Han Solo right. throughout his life. And so you're wondering, is he, but he got fully, he's clearly fully invested in this character in this yes. film because he was on board with what JJ created. And he's like, oh wow, I've actually got a character with uh, rich dimensions and, and he just ate that up as an actor, clearly. And so just to see his invigoration from the comedic elements of the character to the more dramatic elements of the character and the depth that was there, uh, it was exciting. I mean, and not only exciting to see him in that way as Han Solo again, but really it's been a long time since you know, Harrison Ford has, has really fascinated us you know, as moviegoers. And to see that still there, to yeah. see that that's still possible... I was know. invigorating. I know. On all levels, it, it did exactly what more and more than what we needed it to do. Right, right. Uh, like I said, I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit more in a, in a bit. Uh, you want to go one more and then we'll, or my six and then we'll do another interlude? Sounds good. All right. 
Uh, my number six is probably the furthest thing from Star Wars: The Force Awakens that you can get to, um, and it's one that I did not expect to be on this list, and I and I just saw it uh, fairly recently. But it's one of those that I can't shake, and uh, I talk about every day, in my, <laughs> every day since I've seen it, trying to work through it. But it is uh, a movie called Anomalisa. What is it to be human? What is it to ache? What is it to be alive? Each person you speak to has had a day. Some of the days have been good, some bad. Each person you speak to has had a childhood. Each has a body. Each body has aches. Look for what is special about each individual. Focus on that. And uh, this is one of my favorite writers, Charlie Kaufman, uh, who I feel like a lot of me is Charlie Kaufman in, in my sort of dark night of the soul hours. And uh, he's done a lot of my favorite films, uh, written them and directed one of them as well. But uh, he's, he's the brain you know, behind adaptation, being John Malkovich, Eternal Sunshine, uh, to name a couple, um, and Synecdoche in New York, which a lot of people sort of didn't see or were like, that was too weird, which... I think about maybe weekly. Like that movie did mm-hmm. s- did a number on me for sure. That was my favorite film of 2008. Was it? Mm-hmm. Oh, I think I remember that. Yeah, yep. yeah. I love that movie. And and what I the same thing happened with Anomalisa that happened with Synecdoche was I saw it. I immediately was like, I did not like that. By the time I got home, I was like, I think I like that. And then by the time I woke up the next day, I was like, I think that this is brilliant. Mm-hmm. So you he, can't not think about it. No. And he does this so well, and in such a he gets in your brain in such a personal way. But this movie specifically, uh, you know, Charlie Kaufman is a master of surreal, cerebral chronicles of despair, obsession, and failure. Uh, very relatable, uh, legitimately for me. But uh, because we all have those sides of our, ourselves, and Anomalisa is not only no exception; it might be the proof that he is the master of these things. Uh, this is Kaufman's first first foray into animation. And not just any animation, but stop motion animation. Um, with help from animator director uh, Duke Johnson, they create this world that is magical and surreal, yet so mundane and familiar uh, because it's basically our world. It's basically mm-hmm. is the world with a few exceptions that we are in right now, and uh, except told through stop motion animation. And a lot of times, this animation is used to sort of go some fantastical place, um, but he decides to keep it mostly grounded here, uh, maybe save for one uh, dream sequence. But I was so incredibly moved by the simplicity of the art form and the seemingly mundane actions of our main character, Michael Stone, uh, who essentially uh, goes on a one-night business trip to Cincinnati, trying to connect with an old flame, drowning his sadness with a tryst with another, the whole time trying to avoid the inevitable, which is dealing with his own issues and conditions, which it's up to you to decide whether this actually happens or not. But I don't want to say too much about the storyline of Anomalisa because, uh, like I was saying earlier about Ex Machina, um, watching it unfold and figuring out the beats and exactly what was happening was one of the most interesting parts um, of it. So what I will say is that I loved how the story about a businessman with a seemingly boring night in Cincinnati is told in such an artistic and authentic way. Um, and, and I say authentic because... Every single thing that happens uh, in the first act of this movie, him traveling to this, this seemingly boring city, 
him going, checking into this quote unquote nice hotel, but it's immediately when you get to the room, like any other hotel room, I have, I have lived this. I've been in that hotel room. I, I've witnessed these dark nights of the soul surrounded by boring hotel art and single serving coffee cups and soaps. And there's just something so, so beautiful in the way he portrayed the bland of this and sort of like you sort of see even him ordering room service, all this stuff happening, sort of playing out to me, it specifically resonated and packed a punch. And I don't know, he just got every single detail that we take for granted and overlook in sort of our mundane lives. He, he nailed it in a way that I never saw it before. And maybe because he, he looked, we're looking through the lens of stop motion and you're sort of like, that's beautiful. Like the way that these characters are acting, um, and the way they move and everything is like very much real life. Even the way we, we, we throw off our coat and throw it on the bed. Um, so it's all about the minutia in this film for me. And, uh, it struck me several times how the detail and specific, the choices that Kaufman made were, and some, as some might pass it off as pretentious or boring. I tend to sort of love to play in that realm <laughs> a little bit. And uh, it makes me excited. I challenge them to watch this again. Honestly, the people who are like, that was boring and write it off and look closer because there's so much going on in this. And I, and I'm not saying so much because there, I feel like, I could really, and I have been thinking so long and hard about sort of the themes of this movie and such the beautiful way that it, that it shows how quickly when we forget that the world is magic and we forget that people are these fantastic creatures with journeys and stories that we can learn from. We, when we start only focusing on the inward and how good we feel and, you know, really struggling with past mistakes and regrets and we're so living in the past that we can't even see the sort of the, the beauty that is in front of us becomes mundane in one note. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is sort of a cautionary tale in a lot of ways to, for me anyway, has propelled me um, in a lot of, in, in the same way that a lot of sort of like get up and go get them slugger type movies are supposed to do because it's made me look at the minutia and the little things in our lives as like beauty, the same way the tree of life did. It made me, it makes me see even a boring hotel room as, as something artistic and interesting or like the desk clerk or all these things. And so for that, I, I am, I am so thankful that I, that I took the, the plunge and watched this, this movie. And so it had to be my number six Anomalisa. Well, it's not in my top 10, but I, uh, you know, thoroughly just echo all of your praise for the film. Oh, so you've seen it? Oh yeah. And it certainly speaks to just Charlie Kaufman who wrote the script and co-directed the film, uh, I don't know, I just relate to him in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so, like, as I mentioned, you know, Synecdoche, New York was, you know, my favorite film of that year. And what I love about Kaufman is you'd mention his films on the surface can look very pretentious. And some would probably just out and out label his <laughs> films pretentious, and that's fine. But the reason I don't think they are, uh, well, Synecdoche, New York, for example, the whole movie was about popping the bubble of artistic pretense. That was the theme of the, you know, just yeah. my goodness, this guy is, you know, and all these artists that were in that story are so full of their own import. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And they're not grounded, you know, and therefore it's ruining their lives. And it, that's what's creating the existential crisis that these people have. And so, uh, again, with, with, uh, with this film, it's another existential crisis story, but it's not navel-gazing. No. It's a way, it's an existential crisis that we all identify with because it's told with, um, not only with some authenticity, but I think with some humility. 
And even as it gets into the latter part of the story, a lot of times existential crisis stories and narratives, uh, the person who's experiencing that has a feeling of being a victim, uh, you know, whether it be the world or the universe or just events have conspired against them in an unfair, unjust way beyond their control. And, and they just have this identity crisis. And what's great about Kaufman is at some point, he is an artist, and then his lead character begins to realize his own culpability within his existential crisis. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's as self-indicting as it is indicting a lot of the blandness and conformity of the world. Most existential crisis movies are just condemning the external, mm-hmm. are just indicting, oh, the world, they're all just a bunch of you know clones and all that stuff. Yeah. And he's saying, well, I'm as guilty as anybody uh, for my, the own crisis that I'm experiencing. And so it's very self-aware, which is rare. And, uh, and, and what elevates it to uh, true legitimate art and not something that's just wallowing in its own pretense. Right. And then uh, to your point about the animation, what I do like, even though it's largely in a hotel room, in a hotel building, uh, it's like, why tell this in stop motion? And I think the stop motion animation, what that allowed was to take the very mundane context of average American life and add a surreal element to it because uh, there is a surreal aspect to an existential crisis because it does involve ultimately, you know, the human being at the spiritual level. And so to be able to express that visually within this, as well as even just the, you know, the, the sort of not completely fluid motion of stop motion, it just in its own way, represents the internal uh, disconformity and just the disturbance that's inside the characters. And so uh, so form really uh, uh, follows the function here, and they work together. And so, yeah, it's... Uh, um, I, I think, you know, having given all this praise to it, it is the ultimate acquired taste. Oh, totally. So if you're listening to this podcast going, man, I can't wait to see Anomalisa... Yeah. Uh, most of you will likely understandably go, oh my, I don't even know if you'll be able to finish it quite right. honestly. So, um, not to mention there's, it, it's a hard R. It's a hard R. It's a hard R. And so even though it's stop motion animation, you know, uh, figures, there's some sexuality in it, even though it's very tenderly done and it's, uh, very understandable within yeah. the context of these characters and these people, the content is there. And so, um, so anyway, uh, but yeah, I, I totally, I totally get your choice because I get Charlie Kaufman because yeah. somehow in some weird way, even though I don't feel as uh, spiritually oppressed as he does, uh, somehow he gets me. I, yeah. I, I get him I and I, know. Um, as, I, I just love him as, as a storyteller. As much as I always go back to Cameron Crowe, but especially the movies that I love by him, which uh, there are many, mm-hmm. uh, the ones that really have stuck with me, the way I feel like his voice is mine, I feel like it's just as equal parts Charlie Kaufman. As much as I see the world as sort of this wonderful, you know, I, hopeful place, I have hope for the world that we live in. I also have these Charlie Kaufman existential crises mm-hmm. just as often. And so I, I'm always interested to see what he's going to do next. And I love that finding out like this, this uh, movie started off as a radio play between, right. you know, with just three, three characters and, uh, and his idea, like, well, if we're going to do this, I want to do it in stop motion to add that surreal aspect to it. Like, just everything, like, I'm so fascinated by his artistic brain and, and where he's gone. And uh, Yeah, and I think even though, like you, I don't struggle as deeply and no. as often as I think Kaufman does, but to the degree that I have over my life, 
that's exactly how I've struggled. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like, oh man, that guy is nailing it in a way that maybe I've never even been able to fully articulate in my own head and in my own soul. Yeah. He's expressing it yeah. and, and uh, bringing life to it. And so it is, uh, for those of you who do register with the existential uh, crisis narrative, will probably find something to identify in this for film sure. as well. Yeah. Well, Jeff, what is our next musical interlude? So we have had some interesting tracks so far in terms of uh, uh, some upbeat energy to them. This one's a lot more somber, and it is, will foretell where at least one of us will go in our top five. <laughs> it's the score to the highly critically acclaimed film Spotlight. And what's so great about this score is it's very minimalist uh, piano and few instruments being used here. And yet, when you hear it, it so evokes the sort of the heavy nature of uh, the subject of the film spotlight itself. And so it's this perfect musical representation of the mood and the seriousness and the gravity with uh, the story and the themes and the realities being explored in this film. And maybe of particularly interesting note, this score is done by composer Howard Shore, who most people would know as the guy who did the big epic music for the Lord of the Rings movies. This This is is literally the, uh, you know, complete opposite end of the spectrum from the big epic music he wrote for the Lord of the Rings films, yet it's the same composer. So for no other reason, I wanted to highlight this score just to show the full range of some of these film composers that are out there. They really can do anything and do it extremely well. So this is a selection by Howard Shore from the film Spotlight. That'll do it for part one of the Films of 2015 episode. If you'd like to check out Jeff Houston's uh, movie blog site, you can do so at HoustonMovieBlog.com. And if you'd like to follow me on Twitter and Instagram, you can do so at Nick Flora. Next time, we'll go through our top five films of 2015 and highlight some of your favorites as well, as was brought to our attention via Facebook and Twitter. Uh, But until then, I'm Nick Flora. This is Who Writes This Stuff. Thanks for listening.